Hello and welcome. Today we are joined by consultant shoulder and elbow surgeon Ronnie Davis. So thank you for joining us, Ronnie. Hi. Whereabouts are you at the moment? Uh, I'm in my uh, wonderful office in uh, Trafford Hospital, the first NHS hospital. Um, having uh, just finished a little outpatient clinic. Excellent. Well, we'll get back to, to what you're up to at the moment anyway. But where are you from originally? So originally I'm a Berry boy, sort of born and uh, grew up and spent most of my early life around North Manchester in Berry. I uh, went to a little local primary school and um, sort of finished uh, f finished my education in Manchester and, and then moved on to university elsewhere. Very good. Now, my sister-in-law's from Berry, so Tottington. So that... oh, Tottington. Oh, I, I'm, where am I? I'm a slightly further south, but Tottington's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. She's still got the accent more so than you have, so... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it depends who you talk to. Some, you know, some people down south say you're very northern and people up north say you're very southern. Yeah, yeah. so when you were coming through there then, what, what was your aspirations? Do you have any idea you wanted to get into medicine? Yeah, you know what? I was thinking about this the other day. I remember I was six years old and went for a, a takeout with my dad. And uh, we were waiting, I think it was for, for fish and chips. And the guy behind the desk said, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> and I think that was probably the, you know, one of the first times I declared at the age of six. Probably because, uh, not, you know, for good or bad reasons, I suppose, I'd seen quite a lot of healthcare, you know, with family being ill and going to hospital and things. So, um, and um, so that, that was where the seed was planted and it never really changed. And was that something, did you have anyone in the family who had the, that medical background? Uh, as a doctor, no, but plenty of patients in my family. Um, so there I'm, I uh, don't have any, uh, any doctors in, in the family. Uh, a great, great uncle was a... Uh, Uncle Quack, we called him, I think, who was a hypnotherapist and did homeopathic stuff. Um, um, he actually, he called himself doctor because he got a PhD in American Western films and mythology. Oh, really? <laughs> so he called himself Dr. Davis, but he was the only other one. I was actually just talking about this with my colleague yeah. Casey because um, one of the guys that we interviewed previously on here, he worked as a physio for British Athletics, but yeah. he's got a um, PhD in English literature. Yeah, He just didn't feel like he could ever call himself doctor. No, no, it's, it's, it seems a bit wrong. Although uh, I keep getting reminded by my wife, although I'm a medical doctor, she's the one who's got the real PhD. So uh, <laughs> what's that in? Uh, she's a clinical psychologist, okay. um, and that's that's a real doctorate, not not the uh, noddy qualification that real doc that medical doctors get. <laughs> so going back, so when you decided you wanted to be a doctor, like, did you have? Is that when you really started thinking, right? I need to do these A levels, this degree, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's always at the back of my mind. Um, Growing up, I, you know, I really want to be a doctor. And probably a few years later, uh, you know, I used to watch Casualty and whatever on the television. I thought, it's really cool to be a surgeon. I really want to be a surgeon. And it always changed. I want to be a brain surgeon, a heart surgeon, a plastic surgeon, whatever. But I, I knew that I 
what I needed to do. Fortunately, I, my school was very supportive. A lot of people went into medicine. Um, so the path was pretty well laid out in secondary school. Um, I, yeah, I was always science side. I like the science subjects more, more so than the art subjects. Uh, so for me, I was lucky. It was very easy to choose subjects that I wanted. I didn't do anything too wacky as A-levels. And um, unfortunately, my, you know, I was what what I was lucky about was my interest in the sciences and in the the general sort of interpersonal part of medicine aligned with the things that I was okay at at school. Mm. Um, uh, and then, so uh, ha yeah, having uh, met the requirements to uh, take up a university place, um, I, um, I I sort of. From a very very early on, as a medical student, I I knew that I wanted to do surgery, and uh, so I really enjoyed all the surgical placements and learning anatomy and all the things that uh, aren't necessarily as interesting to everyone. Um, but it helped me because from right at the start, because this was the, my focus, I could make sure that my experience, my learning, and my knowledge were was biased towards that. Yeah. And so when you were looking at that then, how you went to, did you go to Cambridge? Yeah. So how did you come to pick that? Obviously, a very prestigious university, but how did that come about? Um, so as a, as a sixth former, I, I did what you're supposed to do. I did my homework. I went around the universities and looked at the different courses. Um, a reasonable number, uh, there, there's a reasonable number of applicants to Oxbridge from my school anyway so it was definitely on the radar and actually I thought I'm from Manchester a lot of my friends are going to Leeds or Birmingham I quite fancy there um, but I'll go for Cambridge I went down and I thought it was fantastic when, when I went down to visit I really liked it the school arranged for us to meet the admissions tutor and have a little tour of Cambridge I thought this is this is like being on holiday um, so I was, I was quite keen on the idea. What happened then was um, I also thought my first choice university would probably be Leeds. Um, Leeds fortunately did me a favour and they rejected my application practically by return of post. So it was, it was quite, uh, so that made the decision a lot easier. Um, so I interviewed for Cambridge. It was very, it's a very funny system with the universities because you, the, the interviews are out of sync. Cambridge was first and I received my offer before going to any other interviews. I was also offered an interview at Birmingham and it's quite good turning up to an interview already with an offer in the back pocket. And uh, they said, well, well, we'll offer you something in case you don't get your A-levels but we'll understand if you choose Cambridge. And I was thinking very hard about it because actually, yeah, a lot of my friends were going to Birmingham. It's a great medical school. And I looked back at it, uh, I looked at it, and the one thing that somebody said, and I remember is a, a, a friend of mine who said to me, you can't turn down an offer from Cambridge. Uh, that was what made the final decision that I'd, uh, that I'd take the offer if, if I get the A-levels. And uh, Fortunately, I, I got the A-levels and went there. Yeah, yeah, well... Yeah. And don't regret it. 
You don't regret it, yeah. So how long were you there for? So the undergrad, the, the degree, it was um, back, back when I did it, it, it was an it was an odd one because it was five and a half years. Uh, and what was uh, special and still is a little bit special about it is they do the first three years were almost completely basic science. Um, you spent a total of about three weeks seeing any sort of patient over the first two or three years. Um, and on the, lot, uh, on the way, you, you pick up a bachelor's degree. Uh, Cambridge being different, although it's a science bachelor's degree, it's still called the Bachelor of Arts, so I've got a BA. Um, and it's, uh, so for the first three, two years, it's clinic pre-clinical sciences, which you work really, really hard. You learn a lot of facts. It's highly, very difficult, highly stressful. And then you think, like learning calculus at school, I'll never need that again. And then you go on and you do your two and a half years of clinical medicine and start being a doctor in February, which was always a bit weird because the rest of the country would start in August. But it was a really good ruse because it meant that all the jobs started in February in and around Cambridge. So they kept their graduates until you sort of get back in sync with the rest of the country for higher training. So I actually ended up spending a further two and a half years in Cambridge, two years to do my foundation jobs and then an extra six months to catch up with the rest of the country. Um, but it's, you know, it's funny, you look, you look back and my postgraduate exams were made so much less challenging because I've already learned the basic science. So, uh, it's, you know, it's funny, uh, in retrospect, you really do appreciate that very basic science education that uh, stood yeah. me in good stuff. Did you, and then, so when you were going there, you said that first three years was very academic and, and hands-on in the classroom in terms of that. Did, it, did you find that challenging? Because uh, just speaking from my experience, of that first year of sports science degree, it really wasn't that much of a, an upgrade from A-levels. No, and in a way, it probably softens the blow a little bit in terms of the teaching style. I mean, this was, uh, you know, 2000, 2005. The first three years, it was, the first two years were basically lectures, a little bit of practical work. I mean, the highlight of my week, I wanted to be a surgeon. For two mornings a week, Monday and Friday morning, we were in the detection room. Uh, studying anatomy properly, dissecting cadavers. And that, I mean, what a privilege it is to, to learn anatomy that way. And very, very few medical schools have done that. But it gives you something that you cannot learn any other way. And that, re yeah, that really cemented my, my wish to be a surgeon. But the quality of the teaching was fantastic. And one of the things with, with the Cambridge, the Oxbridge system is alongside the lectures, you have small group teaching in a group of maybe three to six people with one of the uh, one of the profs or one of the the fellows of the college. So I'd go to biochemistry lectures, understand relatively little, and then go to a supervision, have some really good close group teaching, and uh, to really help to understand it, and then set a bit of homework and. I think what that meant was, first of all, everyone kept up with the course. There were very few people who couldn't do it because you had such close supervision. And it made it a bit more interesting for you as well. Mm. 
So in terms of it making you more want to be or confirm that you wanted to be a surgeon, what was it that started off you wanting to do that? And then what was it about that particular thing which made it confirmed? So I've always been a tinkerer, you know, as a kid, I used to like electronics and things. Yeah, there's not, you know, little um, fixing things, breaking things, a bit of DIY. So I, I really like the, the practical side of it, uh, of surgery. And I suppose people come with different personalities. I like instant gratification. And in surgery, a lot of the time, you, you can actually fix something and you can see the results of fixing things relatively quickly, which fits with my impatience. Um, then, so that's the the general, the personal uh, enjoyment of actually doing it. Um, I really love the the dissection room and uh, learning anatomy and learning about all the surgical pathology and the things that you can see and you can see what's wrong on a scan sometimes and you can fix it. Um, and then as I went through medical school to the clinical years where you were hospital-based, um, I enjoyed the work. It was hard work. The, the a Surgeon's Day, it's, it's a peculiar historic thing, but a Surgeon's Day starts at eight o'clock, practically across the country. The ward rounds start at eight. If you're not a surgeon, you start at 8.30. Um, and I, it's just one of those little lifestyle things. Um, and there were more activities, I thought. As a surgeon, you're doing things. You still run your outpatient clinics. You look after people on the ward. Um, so the, there's that craft aspect, the technical aspect to it. Um, and I also had some pizza uh, trainers uh, as a medical student who I thought were fantastic. Um, you know, Charles Blato, one of the plastic surgeons, was just a brilliant teacher. And there are lots of other people who I thought, yeah, I could see myself doing what they did. Mm. Well, when you say that they were good, like what makes them so good? When you look at that, you can see they really enjoy their work. They enjoy what they do, whatever activity it is. And they really enjoy teaching it. And you could listen for hours and hours and discuss cases with them. And they ju you just got, got infected by their enjoyment of it. And, I, you know, even now, I, I get up in the morning and think, yes, another day at work. It's enjoyable. It's, you know, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to go to work and have something you enjoy. But looking at these guys, I knew it was possible. So that's something that still is the case now. So you're going in, you're still looking forward to whatever surgery he's got on that day. Well, surgery, clinics, every every part of the job's great. Obviously, like any other job, there are stressful things. There are things that you, you don't uh, enjoy as much, the administrative side of things. But, yeah, it really is. The day, you never wonder what time of day it is, and you're never counting the hours until you finish. Mm, that's definitely a great, great way to be. So then at what point do you start deciding which area you want to specialise in, in terms of which body part and area? Um, it happens at different rates for different people. Um, so my journey, when I started, I thought it'd be really cool to be a heart surgeon. I don't know why, I just really enjoyed it. And I had that in my mind. And I remember when I went to Papworth Hospital, which is the specialist heart and lung centre around Cambridge, 
um, as a clinical student, I got to watch some heart bypasses and other things. And it was just amazing, this stuff that they were doing. And uh, again, another of the surgeons, Sam Nashef there, this enormous Jordanian guy, was a brilliant teacher. And uh, we were sitting in the coffee room and just going through the real physiology of the heart, the stuff that we learned in the classroom, but applied to real life. Well, this is fantastic. And these guys were probably the self-confessed rock and roll surgeons. You know, it's pretty high stakes stuff, heart surgery. And then as I went there, I thought, maybe I want to be a children's heart surgeon. And then I did plastic surgery. I thought, this is even better as a, as a medical student. It was really good because you weren't just operating there. You're operating all over the body, doing all, lots of different things, lots of different techniques. And the way that I saw it, cardiac surgery is high stakes. You've got to be really good at stitching, stitching small things together without leaks. I thought that in plastic surgery, there were probably a few more technical skills to learn. It looked really interesting. I loved the anatomy and the work that they did. Um, and at the time, I was probably a bit young and naive, and I saw a bit of commercial value in it as well. Um, and I actually, that, that's always what I want to do. And then I, I started a plastic surgery training program um, as a surgical senior house officer. This was after I'd left Cambridge. Um, I went to Liverpool for a plastic surgery theme training program. And I, I quite enjoyed the plastics. I was at Whiston Hospital, learned lots of things, stitching tendons together and skin graft. And I was quite invested in it. And then I went to do orthopedics, which I'd already done as a foundation doctor, but didn't really get it. But when I went back to it, it was a fantastic unit in Leighton Hospital in Crewe. But this is even better. Um, and yeah, I had that sort of slight, uh, uh, it wasn't quite a personal crisis, but you know, am I doing the right thing? It's 30 years of this job. What will I be happier doing? And then I looked around and I saw people into their 30s still in the queue to get a plastic surgery training post. Um, and plastics is only practiced at relatively few hospitals. So you're tied down a little bit geographically. And I thought, actually, I'm enjoying orthopedics more. So I jumped ship and I uh, moved over and uh, scored an orthopedic training post in Manchester. Mm. What was it about the orthopedics that you particularly enjoyed? Plastic, again, plastics is all over the body. Orthopedics, very similar thing. You can be doing a hand in the morning, or the hip and the shoulder in the afternoon. Um, technically, I thought that there were loads of different technical challenges in orthopedic lots of different techniques there's um, there's the keyhole surgery for example there's the microsurgical skills there's the big open stuff with the hammer and chisels and power tools and you could actually fix things you can start with something in the morning that's broken and you can fix it um, I thought that 
thinking about the future as well. The lifestyle is okay in terms of the on-call commitment, like plastics in a way. There's very little that actually needs to get you up in the middle of the night. And thinking for the future, it's got to be a consideration. Um, so, and, and I, I enjoyed the technical challenge and a lot of the diagnostic challenge as well of, of orthopedics. Some of it's very easy. You can look at an X-ray and decide. Um, but as a global specialty, and there's lots of scope. And in orthopedics, more than anything else, you can do general trauma. I mean, I, I will do trauma for most of the basic trauma for any of the body, excluding anything too complicated um, around the lower limb. And then you can still specialize in your, uh, or subspecialize in, in your area of interest. And I like that balance. I, I'm not getting up every day to do largely the same operation. Mm. And you get to think on your feet, you get to improvise and use lots of really cool tools. Yeah. I know I can imagine. Just going back to you talking about cardiac before. So this is completely off topic. So my dad's plays football. You know, he's in his 70s now, but he's he still plays football. They've all just clubbed in and bought a defibrillator. I've yeah. seen loads of places that I presume since the Ericsson incident in New York. But then also someone, exactly my dad mentioned it to me, that someone just said it's a complete waste of time and having a defibrillator. Like, what's your thoughts on, on that? There's absolutely no question that defibrillators can save your life. Um, and people's heart, you're lucky if your heart stops in hospital in a way that can be shot back to life, because within minutes you will have a defibrillator on you. The sooner you get circulation going, the lower your chances of having a stroke and brain death. And you've only got three minutes, really. Um, yeah, however good CPR is, chest compression, there's no substitute to your heart pumping. So what a great situation. And it happens sometimes if you're lucky enough or unlucky enough for your heart to stop. And these defibrillators in the community are designed for anyone to use you put a couple of stickers on someone and then it does all the work it interprets the heart rhythm to determine if you should be given the shot they 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 save lives there are plenty of documented instances of them saving lives and the sooner you can get the heart back into a normal rhythm and pumping blood the the better the chances are of not suffering a stroke or anything no, good. Yeah, no, I'll pass it on to Dad. He'll be pleased to hear that. So they've yeah. got in a couple of rounds and they've got one now for their football. So Oh, it's fantastic. And and the trouble is this, you know, th these cardiac problems happen to young people and often sportsmen who have undetected heart problems. You know, one of the commonest things is hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, which means your heart muscle grows and grows and gets thicker and thicker. And when it gets to a certain size, particularly when you've got adrenaline pumping and you're really stressing the heart, then it's so thick that the electricity doesn't run in the right direction in the heart. And that's when people have what they call sudden cardiac death, particularly in athletes. So I just think it's a no-brainer. Mm, okay, great. No, that's good. Um, yeah, so getting back on track for you. So I remember when I, I first spoke with you and looked at your LinkedIn profile, and I could not understand the diversity of what you, what the different things that you were doing. So instead of me quizzing you on that, just tell me about e-tailers and how you got involved in uh, that aspect of things. 
Oh God, so th this was years ago. I mean, my, my family have been mainly, you know, dad was there, had shops and businesses and things as I was growing up and did a bit of retail and wholesale. So I was always exposed to that. Um, I mean, God, I remember as a kid selling yo-yos at school and then um, I got a computer when I was in my early teens and got quite good at it and thought, now's the time to see if I can cash in. So I used to go, you know, I was 15, 16, and I'd advertise in the paper and go around to people's houses and teach them how to use computers. And uh, I sold my teachers at school computers. Um, uh, and so this was always, I got into a bit of IT hardware and software. And then when I got to university, I thought, well, I can't go around to people's houses anymore. Um, and I got a bit more into development and web development and that sort of thing. And it just happened at the time where domain names were really hot property. And um, through a very random cold call, I got involved with a guy who, uh, who was into domain names. And um, I built a system to uh, grab domain names that people had, uh, hadn't um, renewed. So we got some fantastic names, you know, printers.co.uk and um, Mint and Hearth and all sorts of great domain names that we'd, uh, we'd catch and try to sell on for a profit. Uh, and we also had a, uh, we, we, we did it for third parties as well. So we, we did okay out of that. And we owned lots and lots of them. The trouble with owning loads and loads of domain names, like we had 50,000 at one point was the renewal fees. And it was a fiver every two years to keep them renewed. So you've got to keep the business liquid. So we sold some and we kept it ticking over. But um, at one point we thought, well, let's just choose some domains to monetize. Um, and it was around this time that I was getting busy with my medical studies. So I actually sold my stake in the domains business and, and um, kept a few of the domains. And one of them was e-tailers. And online retail was growing a little bit. Um, and I had about 30 or 40 different domain names that I was selling various goods, just drop shipping. I just set up a very basic website and, and sold stuff on other people's behalf for a bit of pocket money. And I learned that personalized goods sold quite well. So sort of pivoted towards personalized goods. And it was around the same time that my dad stopped working. He's got some medical uh, disease, uh, medical problems, which makes, makes it hard for him to be employable, but he can still uh, quite happily work from home. So, um, we bought some engraving machines and bought some stock and started engraving stuff. Um, and so it went on. We, uh, we, we sort of built, built the e-tailers business up, brought more and more engraved goods in. And over time, um, it, it became quite a good little business. Um, retail changed, of course, and... Uh, we we uh, we did some business with Amazon through Amazon, and I think the whole landscape now of retail has very significantly changed, and, and um, competition's very different. What people want is different as well, so we're we're always having to innovate to to keep ahead and to make sure that we're not 
doing the same things that we did many years ago. So, um, so, so that's where retailers came from. But alongside that, I, I gained a lot of skills for, uh, for other related activities through retailers, such as development, um, web applications, apps, uh, project management for IT projects, and, and some sort of medical education related stuff. Uh, so it's, it's got a fairly broad reach now, really. Is that something that you still work on alongside your medical? And that, yeah, that's still going. So um, I'm morphing, uh, the e-tailers is still running, and I'm morphing a little bit into uh, supplying some sort of medical grade solutions. So um, I'm quite interested in medical education, and I've uh, designed a system to support medical education when you're training large groups of doctors, which, which has been quite helpful over COVID when a lot of training is virtual. So um, one of those solutions I've sold into the surgical training programs. Um, I've also developed a, a digital solution for consent, um, particularly because we're now doing more and more remote consultation. It feeds well into how we're, we've changed our practice around COVID. So um, uh, I'm uh, at the stage of trialing this digital consent solution. And there are, I, I'm interested in all, all sort of technical things and things like that and keep, keep that sort of stuff ticking over. Yeah, no, it's great if you're passionate about all these different aspects, you know, it makes it a lot easier to be enthusiastic to keep going. Um, so in terms of that then now, how do you manage your time across doing all these things? Uh, that's a very good question, and I think if you ask my wife, she, she might uh, have a different answer. Um, my core job is my medical job. Um, and, you know, I go home and I've got the kids and the family and all that stuff, and, you know, that, that's where I spend a lot of my time. Uh, however, rather than having an, or, or investing lots and lots of time in... Uh, uh, low value, other low value endeavors, I do what I enjoy. So instead of uh, trying to open up a private clinic for two days a week, I'll spend the time doing uh, other independent practice in, in the IT business. And um, yeah, I, 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 th I think that you can choose how you spend your additional time. I enjoy my sport and enjoy all my other hobbies. And and a lot of it just comes down to managing your time and doing things that you enjoy. And it's very easy to, um, I, I find it very difficult to sit around and not do anything. And, uh, you know, I'm much more uh, interested in what I'm doing if I'm actually developing something, making something new. And sometimes like during a clinic, for example, between patients, there's always a lull when I start work uh, at the beginning of the day when uh, when I'm waiting for theatres to get started or waiting for something at the end of the day. I'll fill my time and do something. And uh, it's, I suppose it's just the, the way that I've always worked. I like to be multitasking. And, you know, my wife probably accuses me of not listening to her when I've got my mind on doing something else, but it's probably part of the multitasking that I've not quite uh, got the hang of yet. Yeah. So is that something that you see going forward for you that you're going to try and use all of it in terms of that, that the new clinical education tool that you're doing, trying to balance 
different things that you're working on. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing is, as time goes on, uh, as I've had things running in the past, I sold, I sold the domain business, for example, to free up some time to do some other things. And I, I've got to be selective of what I take on. And in a way, I'm quite lucky because I can turn down projects that I'm not interested in and focus on the ones that I am. And as long as I know it's time limited, if necessary, I'll get people to help out or to do other things. If any of the companies get uh, become self-sustaining enough, then I'll bring more people in to, to run it for me and focus on what I find interesting. Okay, there's a bit of a, a financial loss if you bring people in to do things, but it frees up your time to do other things or to, to focus your energies on other things you enjoy. Yeah, no, absolutely. So from a medical point of view, where, whereabouts are you based currently then? So my uh, NHS practice is Manchester Foundation Trust, MFT, which is um, uh, a combination of half a dozen hospitals across Greater Manchester. Um, at the moment, my trauma practice at MR is at Manchester Royal Infirmary in central Manchester. And then my uh, non-trauma practice at Trafford Hospital. Uh, I'm soon moving my trauma practice to Withenshaw Hospital. Uh, and then I do a tiny little bit of uh, private work in North Manchester. Mm -hmm. Very good. So in terms of other people wanting to get into, well, whether it's medical or IT, like what would your advice be? So getting into medicine, everybody says who's a doctor, I wouldn't recommend someone get into medicine. And I think that's pretty sad. It's probably a sign of the times and people will always say, yeah, everybody tried to talk me out, persuade me not to do medicine or most doctors, apart from my, my GP who was very supportive. Um, but first of all, it's, it's, a, I, it's a great job. There's, there are so many specialties to choose from in medicine. If you want to do medicine, you find something that you want to do. But the people who do the worst out of it, the people who do medicine because they're told to. So um, medicine is a great career. I wouldn't have any problem with my kids do it, doing it. I wouldn't have any problem with my kids not going into medicine. Um, but you've got, just got to go in with your eyes open, knowing that the glory days are over. No one's going to be earning seven figures anymore. Nobody is going to uh, get the... Uh, uh, the, the respect that people historically expected. Patients are much more um, uh, clued up now. They still trust their doctors. Fortunately, medical is a very, medicine is a very well-trusted profession, but people, yeah, pe people are more clued up and they read and, uh, and they have uh, other avenues to get information. So, um, but it's all about set, making decisions early. Now the medical profession, forces you into choosing what you want to do earlier and earlier. Um, I was lucky because I wanted to know other people take a few days, years treading water, but they're years well spent because then when you go into training, you'll be more trained and more ready to take on the, uh, the, the learning and the more senior roles. And, you know, I'm seeing now more and more people are entering at a more junior level in a specialty and they lose a little bit of that diversity. And, and general knowledge. So that's medicine. Uh, getting into IT, I'm not sure I can um, 
very easily advised. I've never had any formal training, went on courses, got any formal education. Um, I remember the first time I did any significant IT project, it was for, it was through a friend of a friend and it was a local pram shop, um, a, a pram retailer, an independent that wanted an electronic till system, an EPOS. And they came to me through their accountant who knew my dad. So can I do it? And uh, I said, yes. I was actually thinking no, um, but I came up with a plan and uh, it was a bit, bit of learn as you learn really. And um, over a few months, I set up this system, sort of learning as I went along, a bit of trial and error, bought a book about database design. And I think that if someone goes into IT now, they can probably be as successful without doing a formal university degree in development. Um, you've got to learn some of the principles and learn to work alongside other people. But, you know, my, you know, my brother-in-law didn't go to university to study IT, and he's down in London in an extremely competitive job now in uh, IT. And again, he, he's self-taught. He's done it from right from the start. And it's just a core skill that anyone should have now. Kids should be learning this stuff at school. I mean, you know, I, I've been trying to get my little lads to do a bit of soft coding stuff just so they understand what goes into it. Because I think it's just a, a general skill that should go with reading, writing, and arithmetic now. Mm, yeah, no, I definitely agree. Everything that we're doing, we're recruiting a service engineer at the moment. Yeah. It's moving away from that typical thing of um, actually mm. working on the machinery, it's more on the actual IT behind it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that it's all developing that way. Um, yeah, you must see it a lot in, you know, in, in your sector. I mean, it's all technical people now, isn't it? No, no, it is massive. Yeah, you've got to be able to understand databases and, and yeah. things like that, upgrade software. All that mm. So, yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. But no, I really appreciate your time on that, uh, Ronnie. That was um, it's nice to get that balance of both of the things that you're working on. And um, yeah, I hope you're going to enjoy being at Trafford for the afternoon. Oh, it's, it's sunny in Trafford, so I shall uh, hopefully be uh, clearing off soon and uh, see, see the little lads, see what they've got, uh, got in store for me at home. Very good. Brilliant. No, I really time and um, I look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, look forward to seeing you, Andy. Thank you very much and uh, good luck. Keep it all, keep it going. Cheers, Ronnie. Thanks.